Brett. Welcome to Panfish Nation, along with Mark. I'm Lyle. Mark, we've got a great guest tonight, a great guest for people that want to know about raising bigger fish, um, building ponds, all kinds of stuff. And, man, if you haven't looked through Bob's Facebook page and seen them giant bluegill that he catches, you need to do that because, you know me, I love them big old bluegills. And that's what caught my eye right off the bat. And then I found out what he does. we got to have this guy. But, Mark, how's things going in the Illinois world? Things are good. Water's low. Uh, we finally broke out of that cold snap. Water's starting to warm up a little bit. Went after some flatheads last night. Got a bunch of channel cats, but uh, wasn't fortunate enough. Fished about seven and a half, eight hours last night. And the channel cats, they were biting big baits. I was surprised to see them go after, like, seven-inch bluegills, but they were going after them, and they were, they were taking them down, too. I was... It was, it was quite the interesting night, to say the least. But uh, I have to ask you, and maybe this is not fair, but I got to know, after being to Wisconsin, how was the channel cat fishing? Did, did you feel deprived after coming back from there? Okay, I did the first time I went out afterwards. I, I really was kind of let down. But you know what? I kind of noticed some of the nuances and the differences in the fight between the, the, the two species, between flathead and, and channel cats, and it definitely gave me an appreciation. We had one yesterday. I think I might have got it on video. Actually do jump out of the water and do another tail stand like the one that I got in, in, That's awesome. in Mendota did, you know, and he was only like about eight pounds and he was still all post spawned out. He was all hopped up on hormones and stuff. I'm guessing yeah. I'm no scientist well, or anything, but they, they were still pretty aggressive last night. And for them to take baits that size. Uh, and one of the reasons we use them that size is to keep the channel cats off of them. And it didn't was surprise. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't work. So they, they, they were still all, they were still all jacked up on whatever, it was that that had them going so uh we'll be it, looking forward to that video coming out I, I hope so too we had a little mishap during the videotaping yesterday so we'll see what happens from the footage we can talk after the show it's kind <laughs> of comical, sounds great <laughs> what do you say we go see some of the people that's already in chat tonight mark absolutely would you like me to start sure i got the list up here we got two stands fishing what's going on stan a couple of crosses fishing what's up buddy how are you doing uh avid fisherman chad nolte i still think that's one of the best fishing names i've read so far in these chats <laughs> it just sounds like fishing chad nolte it does like a rolling martin or something like that it's a pretty good name i really like it <laughs> miss cindy stokes course we adore cindy she's always in here supporting us and and feeding lyle when it comes to dinner time too so that gotta that love keeps that. Us, keep, that keeps us going uh country boy catfishing country boy has a new channel out he sent me a link last night i made sure to subscribe he doesn't have any content out yet but i'm sure he'll get some out there soon we look forward Absolutely. to seeing that from him uh creole catfishing the voodoo doll man in the house <laughs> eric burnside how you doing sir <laughs> eric massey j company what's going on eric how you doing uh fishing with the chad great show chad how you doing bud uh fishing cooking with mike chavez hopefully that new uh um, gravity fed charcoal grill yours is, is serving you right it looks pretty cool freddy's outdoor adventures welcome josh uh monic what's going on josh laura the explorer hello miss laura ann uh maurice Kaysen, he's in everybody's show great support everybody maurice i hope things are out doing really good in tennessee uh, there, there's Panfish Nation. That's Lyle. How you doing, Lyle? I'm Pat doing Pat great. Pat <laughs> Ed. Philip Williams, what's up? Robert Andrews. Ryan Borch, Blue Collar Fishing. What's going on, Ryan? Ryan sent me some stickers. I appreciate it. I need to get some pictures up on social media for you, Ryan, but I do appreciate the stickers. Thank you very much. Uh, Sean Abney, what's up, sir? Sean T. Outdoors, straight to the point outdoors. Josh, the weekend angler. I had him on my show last uh, Monday. That was a great show. really liked talking to Josh, and I really great look forward guest. to going down and fishing with the man and we got matt over at want to be outdoors um avid fisherman i hope i got him i believe i did if i missed anybody uh forgive me you either came in late or uh you weren't chatting and chatting until i read off the list but if we catch it during the show i'll be happy to say hello to you straight that's to a mouthful isn't it bob <laughs> <laughs> straight to the point outdoors is is a new one for us i believe um I would like to, to mention Ryan Bortz is my new Facebook hero. He made a post this week, 
that I'm so proud of him uh, and so much truth to it. Um, there's too many fake peoples in the industry and we don't need them. And, and uh, that's basically what I took out of that. So I was really happy to see that. Um, Freddie's Outdoor Adventure says you forgot the short man, Dockery. Hello, Mr. Dockery. I, I can't say hello. forget the short man. Also, we got to say hello to D. I'm going to say hello again to Betty. And I want to say hello to Katie. There you go. I'm going to get them all covered. Exactly right. There was something else that I was going to mention, and now it's slipped my mind. But I wanted to get our new guest in there. I see Mike Chavez is in chat, too. Uh, we got to say hello to Mike. He's the one that does all the cool cooking. Well, oh, oh, uh, I didn't overlook you, James. I just hadn't got to you yet. You have to understand. I think he was talking about me overlooking him. Oh, oh, man. When he when he when he insults my sister Betty by uh, saying Dockery Biggins, he's going to get overlooked once. Oh, in a while. you just you got to treat your brother right, though. <laughs> <laughs> we have a great guest tonight, Mark Bob Lusk. How you doing, sir? I still lead a pretty cool life, boys. Pretty cool life. I think so. You, I seen a picture of you holding uh, a giant bluegill, and I went and checked you out, and I seen the qualifications and the stuff that that you do, and I knew then we had to have you on our show. I can attest to that too, Bob, because he does nothing but private message me videos and pictures of those big saucer or those big bucket lid sized panfish all the time. The man is enamored with them. So I have a feeling that he's going to take you over today. So I'm going to let him have his way with you. I apologize for anything he might say in his excitement right now. I promise. Right. I, I do love big bluegill, but I like crappie and all the rest of the panfish. That's why we call this Panfish Nation. And and Mark, he's a big crappie guy. Uh, as our buddy James Dockery has been, he's been tearing them up here lately. Lucky guy gets to fish every day just about. And uh, that's awesome that he's able to do that. So, so many of us really can't. But um, I, I have an idea here, Bob, if, if, if this is something you're interested in. What I'd like to do is just let you turn you loose with the show and let you have a seminar type show with us tonight. And at the end of the show, if people would hold their, their questions till the end, uh, Bob will end up early uh, with his, with his stuff that he's going to tell us about. And then we'll take questions and you can ask him about catching the fish or, or growing it because he knows about growing big bluegills. He knows about that. He knows what it takes to get the ponds to the situation like that. And that's something that none of us in, in these shows have talked about. And I think he's the perfect guy to educate us on what we need to know. Does that sound good? That sounds like fun to me. All right, here you go. Take her away. Well, you know, when you uh, contacted me a couple of weeks ago, I was rolling down the road going from uh, one lake to another, to another, and just kind of give folks a little background. This is my 42nd year as a private fisheries biologist. I travel the nation designing fishing lakes for people. So my favorite thing to do is, is to work with you to help you design the best fishing pond. And then how do you manage that? How do you grow some of those big fish? So I've got clients from Golly. Uh, the, the, the big bluegill image that you saw, the pictures there came from Lake in North Carolina. Well, I'm based in Texas. I've lived in Texas my whole life, but I get to roam all over the country working with landowners. And I'll sit down with them and say, okay, what's your, what's your goals? What's the mission? What do you want to do? And so I figure out what, what the goals are for that landowner. Then we assess where they are. You know, what, what, what kind of fish do you have? How big is the pond? What's the water quality like? So I take them through five real basic fundamental principles of fisheries management. The first thing I do is start off about water. I call it happy water. If you don't have happy water, your fish aren't going to be happy. Then the second thing I work on is what kind of habitat do you have? If you've got habitat for panfish, the panfish are going to thrive. If you've got good habitat for largemouth bass, they're going to thrive. You know, if Mark's trying to chase channel catfish, he's looking for channel catfish habitat. If you can find that, he's going to catch some channel catfish. Then the next thing is, what do they eat? What kind of food chain do we need? You know, bluegill, for example, believe it or not, those things are predator fish. They like to eat living things, but they're stifled by their little bitty mouth. You know, when you have a mouth about that big, 
it's hard to eat anything much bigger than that. So you got to figure out the food chain. Then the next thing is genetics. Like the lake in North Carolina is Richmond Mill Lake at Kingfish Society. <clears throat> One thing I didn't I didn't realize is what kind of food chain that that lake had. Now that lake was built, guys, in 1835, and it's been owned by the same family since 1872. Well, they decided they needed to drain that lake and make it better to repair the dam. So they called me in and said, okay, we're going to drain this lake and we want to turn it into the best bass fishing lake we can turn it into. What I didn't realize was how good of a bluegill lake it could be because I got in there while the lake was empty and we were able to do a whole bunch of habitat manipulation, kind of, you know, add some spawning beds and add some places where fish like to congregate. So uh, one thing I knew I couldn't do anything about was the water. That water in that lake flows seven to 10,000 pounds a minute of black water going <laughs> through the lake over the spillway. So uh, every day, seven to 10,000 gallons a minute. So I knew we couldn't do much with the water. The pH was 5.3. You get a glass of it, it looks like iced tea. You know, brown acid water. Well, that water's not real, real productive, but the good news is it was stable. It was predictable. It was autonomous. It was the same coming in as it was going out. So I thought, you know, maybe we can work with that water, which we were able to do. So the next principle after food chain is what kind of genetics do we need? So you got to have the right kind of genetics if you're going to try to grow these fish. So we're going to talk about catching here in a minute. Well, once you have the right kind of water, the best habitat, great food chain and genetics, then you got to have a harvest plan. And since our main focus tonight is about bluegill, here's your very first tip. If you're going to grow giant bluegill, you got to preserve the best of the best bluegills. Now, this is a controversial topic across the nation, but I'm going to tell you how it is. And I've done this long enough that I know this, and I'm totally convinced of this. If you start catching your biggest bluegills or your biggest shell crackers or your biggest pumpkin seeds, what you're going to do is you're going to allow the next size down to mature. And once they mature and start reproducing and start spawning, they're not going to get any bigger. So what I tell people is let's, let's keep the best of the best in the lake. Those biggest bluegill, if they're out there working on the nest, the next size class coming up, the junior varsity has got to get bigger than the varsity so they can run them off the beds. So if the best you can do is grow some eight to nine inch bluegill, then if you'll preserve those, the fish that are a little bit younger than that, will outgrow them. And when they outgrow them, then they're going to be running those fish off the bed. So, you know, when we start talking about harvest, especially with sunfish, panfish, what I like to tell folks is take the next size down. If your biggest bluegills are nine inches, take out seven inches, six inches, and that will allow those big ones to, to, to uh, dominate the rest of the fishery to force the smaller ones to get bigger than they are. So that's a bunch of the tips. There's several tips on how to grow some really, really, really big panfish. <clears throat> now, one of the things, golly, I'm, I'm going to tell you, um, probably 15 or 20 years ago, I'd stand in front of a group of folks like you guys are, and I'd say, you know what? I've probably held five two-pound bluegills, and I've probably held 50 pound-and-a-half bluegills, but I have held thousands of pound to pound and a quarter bluegills. You can grow pound, pound and a quarter bluegills. But then I got to work with Purina Mills, working on this lake in North Carolina. And I said, you know what? With the, with the way this water is, the pH is so low and the alkalinity is so low, we're not going to get a whole lot of help from the water. So we're not going to be able to, to grow the very best food chain. Can you help? create a more complete feed. So Purina Mills said, sure, I will work with you. So they started kind of tweaking the vitamin package and coming up with better proteins and, and, and created a fish food specifically to grow panfish. So guys like me, we're so focused on how do we grow big fish. One of the big deals is we got to have good fish food. So now with better fish foods, I can tell people, my wife is telling me to, to lower my voice. <laughs> we got great trying to sleep. So what, okay, honey, I got it. 
So what we've done is worked with Marina to create a better food. And now we use fishing to supplement those fisheries. And what we've seen are some much, much. I mean, can you grow two naturally? Yes, you can. Can you grow a lot of them? No, you can't. So what we figured out is that now using some really specialized feeds to supplement what nature offers, we can grow some, sure enough, huge, huge bluegills. Uh, two, two and a quarter, two and a half pounds is not common. I'm going to tell you it doesn't matter where you are in these United States. You can grow bluegills that are beyond two pounds. Now, one of the things you got to know about bluegills and red air sunfish, pumpkin seeds, sunfish like that, is they only live six to eight years. So they don't have a real long lifespan. So they got to have the right kind of, of uh, food in the right span of time. So if you're trying to do it naturally, you got to be able to produce the right kind of insects, the right kind of worms, the right kind of bugs and things that they're going to eat. If you don't mind feeding the fish, you can expedite the whole thing. So I'll tell you this, if a fish misses a meal early in its year, years, it can't make it up. And that, that's pretty much for any kind of fish. You know, a channel cat lifespan might be 25 or 30 years. You know, a largemouth bass might be, like in the Chicago area, Some of, I've seen largemouth bass that make it 20 years. You know, in Texas, if a largemouth bass makes it to 10 years, that's old. You know, so that lifespan is, is a big, big deal. So with sunfish, six to eight years old, maybe in northern tier states, might be 10 years. So if you're not maximizing their growth the whole time, they're not going to gain the weight and get the size that you expect. So point number one is preserve your biggest fish. Don't call the biggest fish. Take the smaller fish out. If you want to eat some, that's fine. The second thing is supplement their feed. Go ahead and feed them some. Now, you're not going to do that in public lakes as much as you will in private waters because I work on private waters. Uh, another thing that's real, real important to grow big, big panfish is you got to minimize their reproduction. Now, in northern tier states, bluegill are going to spawn once, sometimes twice a year. In the south, where I live in Texas, they'll spawn five times. So you're dealing with heavy reproduction. So when they're reproducing a whole lot, you got a lot more babies growing up into that, you know, that sixth, seventh grade span trying to get to, to the NFL. They're not going to make it because there's too many of them competing for too little food. So one of the things we do in private waters, especially south of the Mason-Dixon line, is to work with and make sure the bass are crowded. If you've got overcrowded bass, largemouth bass especially, they're really going to zero in and, and call a bunch of those bluegills for you. So minimizing reproduction and keeping the numbers managed well doing that is going to give you bigger, bigger fish. You know, so there are some pretty good tips right there. Now, I've kind of given you the Cliff's Notes version. You got to really, what I call happy water, you got to have the right kind of habitat. If you've got spawning beds, you're going to see something different than if you don't have spawning beds for sunfish or panfish. If you don't have the right kind of food chain for them to eat, that's why I'm talking about supplemental fish food. If you don't have the right kind of food chain, you're not going to get the growth rates. You have the right genetics. And I'll tell you this, here's another tip. I love using genetics that are native to your part of the country. If you live in Iowa, don't go get copper-nosed bluegill from Florida. You're not going to do well. Use your genetics that are native to Iowa. You know, if you live in Colorado, in the lower part of the state, use native genetics. If you live in Maine, don't stock bluegill. They're against the law. <laughs> you know, so there's some really, really good tips right there. Now, when it comes time to catch those fish, you know, and one of the criticisms we get when we feed fish is that it's not fair. Yes, it's fair. Because when that feeder goes off, it goes off for 10 seconds, 15 seconds, and the fish eat all that feed they're going to get within 30 seconds. So feed them two times a day, they're at the feeder for one minute. That leaves 23 hours, 59 minutes that they're not at the feeder. And I promise you this, even though fish are eating fish food, you're still going to have to work to catch that two-pound bluegill. Now, just a, a couple of tips that I, that I do. If I want to catch a big, big bluegill, first of all, i got to figure out where their habitat is. Where do they like to hang out? Now, this lake in North Carolina, one thing I was going to tell you is as that lake was filled back up, I began to notice that there were these areas of sandy soil 
where a, a kind of grass would grow up in the shallow water, maybe eight to 10 inches deep. And then once that grass, the grass looked like Johnson grass, but it would only grow up to be eight or 10 inches tall. And once that mat reached about the size of the hood of a pickup, it would break loose and then float across the lake. And it would hang up on you know stumps and things like that. Well, as a biologist, me, I'm pretty curious. So what I did early on is I would get out and wade out there and stick a net underneath those islands just to see what was there. And it was amazing to me to find all the different little bitty shrimp. I found native sunfish that looked like angelfish, black banded sunfish. I found insects. I was amazed at the number of dragonflies would come up out of that lake. And most of them lived in those floating islands of grass. And the, uh, you folks that live in Wisconsin, uh, some of the flowage up in the upper reaches of Wisconsin, you'll see floating islands of peat moss that come out with trees, heck, cottonwood trees that may be, you know, 10 or 12 inches in diameter would be growing in those islands. Under those islands is teeming with all kinds of food, the bluegills and panfish and, you know, um, uh, pumpkin seeds love. So managing that food chain in this North Carolina lake especially was fun. And when we, uh, one of the fun things a biologist does is we like to see what the fish eat. Well, I don't want to kill a two and a half pound bluegill. So we had this little deal, little device where we had a little bitty bilge pump that I could regulate the flow, stick a tube down his throat, <laughs> make it spit up what it ate. It was full. Every one of those two pound bluegills was full of little bitty insects, all kinds of larvae. Anything from um, damselfly larva to mayfly larva, and they were just loaded up with bugs. So not only did the fish food play a big role to grow those giant panfish like that, but so did the insects. Now, part of the reason I wanted to look at the insects is I wanted to figure out how I could catch those bluegill. If you can grow a two and a quarter, two and a half pound bluegill, and you can't catch it, what's the point, right? That's kind of what I'm thinking. Uh, and by the way, the biggest bluegill I had my hands on in that particular lake was three and a quarter pounds, three pounds, four ounces. That's huge. That's huge. Of course, all you panfish followers, you've been watching Lake Havasu, you see the shell crackers over there, and they're feeding on quagga mussel. Well, <clears throat> the thing about bluegills is they're feeding more on, on insects and whatever they can catch, even little bitty fish. Some of those two-pound bluegills, we found baby minnows in their bellies, you know? So now how do you tell you my, one of my favorite ways is to use a, a 132nd inch, uh, 132nd ounce jig dipped with a night crawler or, you know, a piece of red wiggler or something like that under a bobber. Now that's the way I like to do it. Cause I was raised on that, you know, in the biggest bluegill I've caught, I've caught on a 132nd ounce jig, um, chartreuse with red eyes and fishing with night with a little chunk of night crawler where I know those bluegill are. And um, it depends on the time of the year, like in the dead hot part of summertime, uh, I'm fishing, you know, two or three feet off the bottom of a flowing lake like Richmond Mill or in Texas, I'm going to be fishing right on top of the thermocline where the thermocline intersects the bottom. So there's some tips for you right there. So guys, that's kind of my Cliff's notes on how to grow big bluegills, how to grow big panfish, and then what I do to try to catch some of them. So I know that's pretty fast, but we can take some questions or you guys can pitch things at me and we can take it from that. I'm thinking that was some great information, Marv. I I have to agree. I was, I, I was really... Paying I'm close still attention. trying to get over that three and a couple of questions that I have. Uh, I know I saw a couple of questions in chat about where to get the food, but I, I guess my main question would be what kind of supplements and, and what are you trying to replace when you're, you're, let's say editing their diet with, with feed? Well, the, my favorite fish food is a specialty fish food that was designed by Purina Mills. It's called Aquamax Sportfish MVP, like most valuable player. 
And the reason I like that fish food is it's got nine different pellet sizes. So the fish in anywhere from two inches or three inches all the way up to, to 10 or 11 inches long or even bigger can eat that fish food. Now that diet is a fish meal based fish food. So it's, it's designed for carnivorous fish, which bluegill are carnivorous. They, they, they're meat. A lot of folks don't realize that, but they're absolutely meat eaters. So one of the things about bluegills, it's easy to condition them to fish food. So if people have private ponds and lakes, they can order that fish food through pretty much any Purina dealer. Now, different parts of the nation, you know, where there's not as many ponds, dealers have a little bit harder time getting it. But for the most part, you can order that fish food presented to the fish and you don't have to feed much. It's a, it's an expensive feed. You'll get sticker shock when you look at it. It's $45 a bag. But the good news, that's for a 50-pound bag. But the good news is they convert that feed like 1.3 to 1. So if you feed 1.3 pounds of feed, you're going to get a pound of sunfish out of it. So it's well worth it. And that, um, one of the things I like about feeding fish is you supplement what nature provides, but you can feed a lot more fish. Whereas a typical pond might grow X number of bluegill per acre, with this feeding program, you can grow five times that many fish and have five times the fun. Very cool. And can you get that into, like, for some of us who have bait tanks, can you get that in micro, small containers just in case? <laughs> I think if you go online, that you can buy it in smaller containers. Now, you won't be buying it because there's resellers out there. Gotcha. Fish food, and they'll repackage it, especially for aquariums. Perfect. Or bait yeah. Lyle, I see that James has a question out there. If you want to highlight it or I can just read it. Absolutely. James Dockery says, say you have a two-acre pond. How many fish are you talking about a year to keep it healthy? Well, James, I'm going to predict got predator fish in there. So if you've got some largemouth bass and a two-acre pond, I'm going to tell you that you should be harvesting anywhere from – 25 to 50 largemouth bass, smaller than 14 inches. Now on the bluegills, like I said a while ago, preserve the biggest ones. And if you want to take out anywhere from 50 to, to 200 through the course of a year of smaller bluegills, you can do that without hurting anything. Of course, that, that recommendation is somewhat based on geography. You know, like Mark, where you are, I'm going to tell you, take out the lower number. But... James, if you're if you're down in uh, Louisiana, you can take out that 200 because they're going to be replaced pretty fast by reproduction. Fish He's trip. actually in North Missouri, so. Well, in North Missouri, I'm going to tell you, in James, in North Missouri, if you take out 75 bluegill to 150 bluegill per acre, you're going to be okay. So anywhere from 150 to 300 bluegill through the span of a season. Now, when I say that, that means from March until, you know, it starts getting cold just right around um, Thanksgiving. Here's, here's, uh, I wanted to let you know, we had a, a gentleman in chat just a few minutes ago from Australia listening to you. So we've made an impact, <laughs> <laughs> but here's one of the most true statements that's been made all night. Brad Cottle says, this that's the quietest I've seen both of you. Thought I was on the wrong channel for a minute. So you had Mark and I's one hundred percent attention. I got lots of questions. I see, but I'm going to let the people in chat ask their questions first. Absolutely. I see another one by Stan. If you want to highlight that one, Lyle. <laughs> by more fishermen practicing CPR and selective slot harvest, will that help in public waters to increase the size and health of fish? Yes. You know, the, the thing about that is start talking about public water. You know, when you when you talk about agencies, they have a, they have a really hard time enforcing the laws. So uh, the, the direct answer to that question is absolutely yes. If you don't harvest fish within a slot that isn't growing, then the rest of the fish are going to suffer because of that. Now, I'll give you an example of that. You know, if if if, if your pond or lake or any pond or lake if the dominant size range of, say, bass, for example, is, you know, 12 to 14 inches and they're not gaining weight, the reason is they're overeating their slot in the food chain. And by reducing the numbers, 
you're going to make more food available for fewer fish, which means those fish that are left behind are going to grow bigger and they can grow out of the slot. So slot harvest is real, real important. I'm, I'm a huge fan of slot harvest, whether it's for panfish or crappie or largemouth bass or even walleye. I'm a huge fan of slot harvest. Okay, I'm going to get a quick question in on, on, on kind of to piggyback that one. Uh, being that I live in such a um, densely populated area, all right, and, and it and being more, uh, I don't know how to say this without being political, but liberal-leaning area of the country, um, harvesting fish isn't as important to most people as, you know, leaving them be. People have this misconception that, you know, don't mess with the fish and they're going to grow to be big or the numbers are going to prosper and stuff. Will, I, I definitely understand that after listening to a lot of what you've been saying. Will, I guess my question is, will Mother Nature take care of itself eventually? As far as controlling or getting the numbers back, because we have so many stunted ponds here. Let's say I have one green sunfish where they don't get over three to four inches max, and they Mother, get nowhere near, and there's thousands of them in there. Yeah, Mother Nature will take care of it, and we won't like it. Yeah. You know, if we, here, here's the way I look at it. A pond or, or even a river or a reservoir is like a garden. It's going to produce a crop. Part of our role as stewards of that water is to harvest the crop. I mean, we're not going to plant 52 rows of tomatoes in the garden and not harvest tomatoes. You know, a, a pond or a lake is the same way. It's going to produce fish. And part of our job is to figure out which fish need to be harvested. You know, and a lot of that goes back to goals. If the goal is to grow really huge fish, then we got to protect the best of the best. And then we got to be calling those that are interfering with the best of the best. That's why I like slot limit. You know, with private waters, you know, taking out fish, bass, for example, that are 12 to 14 inches, that helps the rest of the fish to get bigger. And I'll tell you this, when a fish misses a meal, like a three-inch green sunfish, if they're not growing, if they're not feeding, if they're not gaining every day, you know, if they miss five days with, with a meal, they can't make that up. So the top end growth isn't going to be nearly as big, no matter how good their genes are. You know, I see a question there. Can you overstock a pond with too many baby fish like minnows, bass, and bluegill? No, not really. Uh, I've never come across a pond that had too much bait fish. It's typically the other way around. There's too many predator fish overeating the bait fish. That's typically what happens. So one of our jobs is to come in and take, um, to take those fish that are overabundant. Because what happens in nature is fish are going to grow to a certain point, they're going to reproduce, and then their babies are going to grow into the slots and they're going to overeat the food chain. It's like if we took, you know, the, the, the football team and hauled them into a cafeteria and let them eat everything in there, <laughs> and here comes the JV, what are they going to do? They're out. They can't play. <clears throat> I know you're a biologist, but do you bluegill fish much? I'll tell you this. Listen to me. The <laughs> First fish I ever caught was a bluegill. I hope the very last fish I ever catches a bluegill. <laughs> I, love bluegill. I love bluegills. They're my favorite. My grandkids, the very first fish they've ever caught, every one of them that is big enough to fish has been a bluegill. That's my favorite. So I, I, I agree with you too. And, and one thing to add to that is you know what I realized just last week in that um, a bluegill fights harder than a bass pound for pound. Absolutely right. Absolutely does. I mean, I was up like I, I was doing like bait fishing and had 12 bass that I had caught and like 24 bluegill. And those bluegill were way more fun to catch than those bass were. Heck yeah. Yeah. My favorite bait is it just depends on the mood I'm in compared to the mood they're in. You know, I love to take a five weight fly rod and throw a popping bug next to a bush. And see if I, and when I know there's big bluegills in there, and see if I can coax them to come eat that. And if they can, okay, honey, I'm still too loud. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that? Everybody turn up your volume. So Bob, that's right. We don't want his. him to stop. <laughs> hey, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna change gears a minute. I'm gonna give some tips to young parents out there watching this. You you folks that are raising kids. It's going to go by really, really fast. They're going to grow up, and then they're going to go away, and then they come back and bring more with them. That's right. That's 100% correct. And 
100%. And then you get to hang out with midgets and teach them how to go catch a fish. Now, I'm okay with that. It's always so much fun. It absolutely is. One more little tip on grandkids. Their parents' job is to raise them. When you go hang out with them and let the parents go out on a date, your job is to keep them alive. That's yep. what you're doing. And now memes is trying to get them to sleep. So anyway, <laughs> going back to my favorite bait. I, I, I don't know why, but when I was a kid, the first bluegill I caught was I, I dug up some worms in my mom's flower bed, red wigglers, and catching them about 10 or 12 inches deep under a tiny little bobber. That was my favorite way. And to this day, it still is. I love I love doing that. You know, you got to go find them, especially if you're going to target big bluegills. Big bluegills, I saw one of the questions is, is do they do they school according to size? Yes, they do. So, you know, typically if you're going to catch six and seven inch bluegill, there's going to be more than one there. And if you can find them, you're going to catch pretty much similar sizes until they, until they quit or until you catch all you can catch. You know? So um, I love fishing under a bobber, but I also love, you know, chasing them with a popping bug. And I also like to, to, to even, you know, kind of, kind of like you do a, a Senko where you take a, piece a little piece of nightcrawler about that big and then put it on a small circle hook with no weight and just flip it out there just let it sink to the bottom and when that line goes tight just there you go you know so and and you know what i don't i don't care as much if i catch a bluegill as much as i like to play the game to see if i can trick them or if they can trick me you know if they trick me they win if i trick them we both win that's right. Yeah, absolutely right. You're a man after my own heart when you said that. That's that's the kind of the way I play all my fishing games. So I'm not as much out to 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 slay all the big ones or the big numbers. It's trying to figure it out and 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 go from there. So yeah, see Sean T outdoors talking about a signature Bill Dance Lake. I, I've known Bill Dance for a long time. I've helped him off and on over the years. And uh, I'll tell you this his favorite things to do. If you sit down and talk to Bill Dance. He'd much rather be in the Mississippi River trying to catch catfish than he would be chasing bass. That's a that's a fact. I know Bill pretty well myself, and and you are one hundred percent correct. Right. Uh, the last time I seen Bill, he was backing or he had somebody who was backing his truck into the water in Memphis. We was down there for a big tournament, and Cindy and I pulled into the ramp, and he stopped the truck. He got out and come right over to us, and we visited. And uh, then they launched. They was doing some filming before the tournament, and and uh, what a great guy! That's him. That's him. I, I almost let's see. Almost hate to bring this one up, but I'm going to show it. Um, my buddy James, he's just a mess. We went to Wisconsin, and he'd caught some gills for me and put them in my live well, and we had them in the little baskets, and they didn't didn't survive. They put them on ice and used them as cut bait. But he, he blames me for the fact that he put them in them little bitty things and they couldn't move around. So uh, I'll take the blame, James. I'll, I'll take the blame. You can blame me for it. He's a hoot. So the best way to keep them alive, let's say, whether it's in a bait tank or, or in transport or whatever, what do you recommend? First of all, uh, I like to keep them in the water that they were raised in. You know, and I like to add a little bit of salt to the water. Yep. You know, if it's, let's say if you had uh, 50 gallons of water, I like to put a pound of salt. Wow. Table salt. And what the salt does is it dehydrates their slime enough that they don't slough it. You know, so the slime holds tight. Their slime is the protective cover that prevents them from injury and getting sick. Uh -huh. And when you have them in a basket, the basket's abrasive. You know, so if you had them in a basket... They want to escape, so they're going to flounce and flush and just blow up. If yeah. you keep them in a live well, you know, with the lake water, and then when you get ready to transport them, transport them with – I'm curious about it, some systems you can use with aeration. they got to be aerated because of escape. Another a real important thing about bluegills, if you're going to try to transport them, is don't get greedy. You know, if you've got a, a cooler that you're going to move them in, and you catch 100, take 20. Put the rest back in the lake and come get That's them. right. So don't let them get crowded. Use a little bit of salt and haul them in the water that, that they were raised in. And when you get to your destination, 
take about half of that water out and exchange it with water that you're going to put them in and then do that twice and then don't delay get them get them where they're going to be and then they'll do fine yeah i think we learned a valuable lesson this trip yeah I, I i tell a lot of the younger guys that i fish with that the best bait tank that they have available to them is the pond or the river that they actually catch their bait in mm -hmm. if you don't need the bait don't take it leave it there for next time totally totally agree totally agree. don't get just because it was a good day yeah Betty jean wants to know if you please share your most shocking discovery throughout your years of research Oh boy, the most shocking discovery. Um, you know, over, over 40 plus years of doing this, one of the things I have learned is to not have a lot of expectations. You know, now I can't help but have some expectations on lakes I manage because I really want the fish to grow and be better. So maybe the most shocking discovery that I've ever come across would be seeing some phenomenal growth rates in fish. And actually there's a lake in Missouri that I've helped manage that I'm, I'm astonished at how fast the fish are growing in that lake. It's about a 60 acre lake. I'm astonished by the walleye growth and by the smallmouth growth and by the largemouth growth and the bluegill growth. That lake is just cranking out some fish after two and a half years that are just amazing. There's some, Bass in that lake that are almost five pounds. And I guess maybe one of the most shocking discoveries was a lake I was working on in Texas one time. This is a fun story. You'll like this. <clears throat> there was a club lake over in East Texas. And this was in 1989. And uh, uh, when I got there, it, uh, there was like only 15 members of that club. And one of them was a banker from Dallas that owned the Dallas Cowboys. And he was out fishing on a Monday and the caretaker said, Hey, stay away from that boat over there because those guys are fishing. And uh, there's uh, an oil man out of Arkansas sitting there talking to him about buying the Cowboys. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll stay away from those guys. I had no idea who it was and what they were doing. So I had my electro fishing boat. And what we were doing was we were out trying to shock up a bunch of 12 to 14 inch bass and move them to a lake. We just got through rehabbing. We had drained the lake, started it over, and we wanted to take some fish out of the big lake and move them to the smaller lake. Well, it was it was Bum Bright who owned the Dallas Cowboys, and it was Jerry Jones who wanted to buy the Dallas Cowboys. And they were negotiating that deal in a boat in this private lake in East Texas. Well, I'm cruising along, and all of a sudden I see a big whirl to my right. So I turned my boat over, and I hit it with electricity, it was about a nine-foot alligator. <laughs> oh. And I had not seen an alligator in that lake before. Well, when I hit that alligator, it slapped the bottom of my boat, jolted it sideways, and then headed straight for that boat where those guys were fishing. <laughs> so that was a pretty shocking deal that day. But um, most of I can't say that I see a lot of shocking things. Uh, one of the Some of the fun things that I see is – working on lakes that adjoin a river like oxbow lakes we'll come across some pretty interesting things like fish you've never seen before you know um silversides minnows you'll see gigantic buffalo uh great big gar things like that you know but i'm not i'm not shocked by that but there's a lot of fun things i get to see and do i uh, am always surprised at the size of fish in small ponds it amazes me you'll catch 50 little fish, and then all of a sudden, boom, you'll hit a good one. That's right. And when you do, it's a giant. And that just is so, I don't know, it, it just instills the fact of how good things can be mm -hmm. if, if everything's right, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, it just hit me when you said that. It struck me. There was, and one thing that did shock me early, early on, we were sampling a, about a 50 acre fishing lake down south of Houston. And we picked up a 52 pound blue cat. Well, that was a bass fishing lake and that landowner didn't want those blue cat in there. We took it out, we put it into a, a bait tank on the, on the farm. And when we finished that night, we finished like two in the morning and he wanted to go dress that fish. So we took that 52 pound blue cat 
And in the gullet, in the stomach of that fish, was a three-pound largemouth bass. Oh, oh yeah. Wow. It was pretty justified not wanting those big blue cats. Yes, it was shocking because alligator, too. <laughs> You know what surprises me a lot, Bob, is um, I, I do a lot of pond hopping and stuff and, and, and local spots here. The diversity in size and, and, and types of fish that are in each one. Uh, these are mostly like subdivision ponds and stuff. How, how, how do the people that run these go about deciding what to stock them, um, where are they making mistakes, where are they doing the right thing? Obviously, the water must be where, you know, I'll have one spot where I'm getting 10-inch red ears and another one I can't get a bluegill or a green sunfish over three to four inches. Um, how do they decide whether to put bullhead in it or not? Well, what goes into those types of decisions? Most of the time when you're stocking bullheads, it's an accident. You know, the, the red ear sunfish you're talking about, the only way those get big is if they got the right food. They're, they call them shell crackers for a reason. They eat snails. And the red ear have way back in their throat, have these two little bony pads that are just perfect. When they swallow a snail, they can crush it and then swallow it and digest it. Bluegill don't have that. So it's, it's really all about the food chain. And a lot of these decisions that people make on stocking fish are based on the availability of fish. You know, what kind of fish can you buy from a fish hatchery? Some of the fish like green sunfish, they show up because they're in the watershed. Uh, bullheads, they show up because they're in the watershed. You know, people in the South won't eat a bullhead because they taste muddy. But in the North, holy cow, they're a delicacy coming out of winter. You know, there are all the menus of the better restaurants. You know, so it's a lot of that's regional, but some of it has to do with the goals of the landowner. You know, the goals of the city, the goals of the homeowners association. Mm -hmm. so the fish that they choose are oftentimes based on the goals, then compared to the type of water they've got. You know, if they got a golf course pond, they're going to treat it totally different than a subdivision pond, which is going to be treated totally different than the guy that owns 50 acres and wants to take his grandkids to catch their first fish. You know, in a three-quarter acre pond, behind, you know, so it's all it's all about the goal. What are your thoughts on metal fish attractors versus natural? You know, the thing I like about artificial fish habitat, fish structure, is it's permanent. Now, metal, I'm not real keen on metal because depending on the type of metal, it tends to corrode underwater, which, you know, I mean, it may not be toxic, but it's just, you know, I don't like things that are corrosive. I love to see tires that are put together in reefs. Uh, there's a company out there called Mossback that manufactures recycled plastic fish attractors. I really like some of the uh, man-made fish habitat simply because it doesn't degrade. You know, natural habitat, you look at most all public lakes in their first five to 15 years, they're prime. But after that, the habitat, the natural habitat tends to degrade because it's wood that's decomposing. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's leaves that are falling off the trees. It's, it's breaking down. So I like some of the artificial habitat, especially in, in private water. It's a little bit pricey to put it in public waters, but once it's there, it's there. Um, I had a, a message in face from Facebook, and I just added it to the chat. And the, it says, Lyle, get him to talk about what to put into a new pond. Well, once we talk about what the mission is, then we want to build a food chain. You know, and, and one of the things I'd like to drive home about this is you choose the fish that you want uh, based on your goals. And every fish plays a different role. Fathead minnows, for example, they play a totally different role than bluegills do. Fathead minnows are great for a brand new pond. If you want to promote the first year's growth of largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, walleye, even channel catfish. But if you've got an existing pond, you don't use fatheads for that. Now in the South, bluegill are the backbone of the food chain for largemouth bass ponds. You know, in the North, pumpkin seed are a little bit better choice. So the types of fish that you choose, you want to build the food chain to support the game fish that you want to stock later. So we always start off by trying to build the food chain. It takes 10 pounds of bait fish for a game fish to gain one pound. So we want to really bolster the food chain and get it cranked up early before we ever add a predator fish there. 
Very cool. Uh, I do see Palmetto Cats made a couple of comments about um, someone in his subdivision uh, moving fish around and stocking ponds on their own. What are some of the dangers of doing stuff like that? I, I didn't catch the tone. Like, like, let's say somebody down the street wants to put a flathead in, let's say, a local pond, right? What are the dangers of moving fish around like that, yeah. stocking it on your own, and so on? Okay. That, I call that bucket biology. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'll tell you this. I'm going to come at you from two different angles. When you take a like a flathead that grew up in that lake and you move it to this lake, there's no assurances that it's going to thrive in a new habitat. See, fish can't think. They can't reason. You know, when, when a fish is hatched over there and thrives over there, it deserves to die over there or in your skillet. You know, if you take that fish out of that environment and put it into another one, not only are you cheating it out of its environment, but you're putting it into an environment that you're either going to disrupt or it won't thrive in. Now, if that flathead happens to thrive, it's going to come in there and grow up and get huge, and it's going to eat the best fish in that new environment. So I'm not a really big fan of moving fish from one lake to another. Mm -hmm. now, a couple of times I'm okay with it. If you, if you have a lake or a pond that you know has got better genetics than you do, and you want to bring a few fish over, to enhance the genetic, I'm okay with that. But uh, part, I think you're cheating the fish, you're cheating the lake it came out of, and you're cheating the lake you're putting it into, and that's 0 for 3 in my book. So I don't like it. You know, I'm not opposed to it. I, just, I don't think it's smart biology. I don't think it's, and especially if you're bringing fish, you don't think about. You know, there's been some of the uh, finger lakes that have been completely disrupted. But people are bringing some fish in that outcompete native fish that are entered right. to the food chain for that fishery that's not smart we have some local ponds here that have like 40 inch pike in them it's ridiculous i wonder how they got in there yeah, <laughs> yeah no kidding parker has a question it says why um why is it in some ponds that we have an overabundance of of bass the bluegill are huge i know the bass are keeping the bluegill in check just wondering if there was another reason that's the primary reason it's because the bluegill numbers, when the bluegill numbers go down, their sizes go up. Now the catch 22 to that is if they're not reproducing enough to recruit young ones into the system, they're going to age out. You know, they're going to age out at six, seven, eight years old, then they're going to disappear, you know, but that's, uh, and when you have fewer fish competing for that food chain, the, the biggest best are going to, going to grow from, food chain. So when they're, when the largemouth bass are eating the young of the year bluegills, that the surviving bluegills are going to be the ones that get to be huge. So it's a matter of, that's more of a math question, more of a matter of number. Uh, one of the things, one thing when trying to manage a pond, uh, when manage a pond, don't allow treble hooks for bass. I have found dozens of two or three, four, five-pound bass dead in my pond from being caught on crankbaits. It's your fish. You make the rules. That's right. I, that, that answer couldn't have been any better. Mm -hmm. yep. That's exactly right. And I think that's a lot of the reason why people in the catfish industry, and I know this is Panfish Nation, but I think that's a lot of the reason why people in the catfish industry have got away from treble hooks. Mm. Yeah, and you know what? I, I'm not a big fan of treble hooks in private waters. Um, and if 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 the landowner insists on it, I want him to bend the barb down flat. You know, bend the barb down flat. It's not so much that they're going to swallow the treble hook as it damages the fish's mouth. You know, right. and if you'll bend the barb down flat with the shank of the hook then I have a little bit less heartburn. But if, if it's your fish and you're managing it, paying the feed bill and you built the lake, you it's your rules. If you play, invite them to go fish somewhere else. I believe that um, the Canadian people, of all the things that I disagree about what they do up north, I think the barbless hooks is one of the greatest things in the world. And it's not that I don't, I think that it makes that much difference, but it does make a world of difference. If you will look at what we have going on in the United States versus being able to go 
up to Manitoba and fish the Lockport Dam and catch 4,000 pounds of channel cat and release them back uh, in three days. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And that goes on every year up there. And we don't have a place in the United States that I'm aware of and that I, you can do that. I love to preserve the resource, but I respect the resource enough to know when it's time to harvest and which ones you need to harvest. So I'm a big proponent of harvest, and I'm a bigger proponent of what I call selective harvest. You want to be picky about what you take out. You don't disrupt the fishery because you're taking too many out or you're not taking out enough. Yeah. I, you know, I just overrun a comment right here that I thought was pretty well. There probably in a lot of the retention ponds and subdivision stuff, there probably isn't enough food. That's 99 times out of a hundred. That's the problem. But you know, when they're building these subdivisions, they have to get the dirt and fill and stuff from someplace. So why not create a community pond that people can enjoy? I got that. But it needs to be managed. Wouldn't you agree with that? I would totally agree with that. And it's not that hard to do. Yes, I would think so. It's handy too. Most, Most of them are not that big. Yeah. No, they're they're really not that hard to manage. There was one comment about winter kill back there. We'll hit that for a minute. Um Sure. Winter kill happens in ponds where the ice gets so thick for so long that oxygen is depleted. Oxygen can only be added to water two ways. One is to communicate with the atmosphere and the other is from photosynthesis from plants. But if there's too many plants in water and it gets covered with ice and snow on top of it where the sun can't penetrate, those plants will consume a lot of oxygen. So northern ponds, a lot of them, especially shallow ones and older ones, really are subject to winter kill. Now, there's ways to beat that, but you don't beat it in the wintertime. You beat it right now by no. uh, helping make the water happy. Remember the five things. Have happy water, great habitat, food chain, the genetics, and a harvest plant. If all five of those things come together, you can mitigate the risk of winter kill. And there's ways to do that by making sure that water's clean and healthy and that habitat's clean and healthy before you ever get into wintertime. So right now is the time to be working on things with a pond to minimize the risk of winter kill. Very good. Betty has a question here. It says, please explain the importance of keeping large male bluegills in the habitat and the effects on the population and spawn cycle when these large males are removed. Also, how to distinguish between males and females. Well, let me take that last part first. The way okay. to distinguish between male and female bluegills is when you look at a male bluegill that's sexually mature, look above the, the uh, lateral line and you'll see the majority of their scales are tipped in black. And the females aren't that way. So when you hold a male in your hands and you look at it, you look at the edge, outer edge of their scales and you'll see darker coloration. Females aren't like that. Then you look at the male on his gill flap, it's almost always darker, almost black color. He's going to have a deeper, richer color than the females are. Females are going to be lighter in color. Now, in terms of preserving the males, you know, I, I think it's important to preserve enough males because they're the ones that guard the nest. If you take those big males off the nest, then you're disrupting reproduction and you're making room for younger fish to come in and take over those nests and not grow any bigger. So that's the biggest reasons to preserve males. I'm okay with eating some of them. But I'd rather see you eat them when they're not spawning. 100%. Yeah. What about using suckers and algae eaters in ponds to help control the underwater environment? Well, when they say underwater environment, what that means to me is we got too many plants. You know, suckers are, um, and I love suckers. I think suckers are an underrated, underused fish in management because fish just don't grow them. I think they're long cigar shaped fish that the walleye, smallmouth, largemouth bass, and, and uh, tiger muskies, fish like that, love to eat. You know, so I think they're a great part of the food chain. Now, they're typically scavengers, so they're not, they're not going to feed so much on aquatic plants as other fish do. You know, so controlling the underwater environment, um, I see them as one of the tools in the pond management toolbox but I don't really see them 
controlling the underwater environment. I think they can enhance it, but they're not going to control it. Uh, man, I had a... Oh, here it is. I want to try to get all the ones... I've, now, folks, please understand, if I miss a question, put it back up because I'm not skipping over anybody. I just don't see them all. But I think we're getting the majority of them. How often do bluegills spawn in a year? It depends on where you live. If you're in upstate New York and you're feeding the bluegills a little bit, they'll spawn twice a year. If you're not feeding them, they'll, it'll be late June and they're going to grow like hotcakes and make it all the way to September and be five inches long. And then that's probably where they're going to top out because they get crowded. Where I live in Texas, central Texas, south Texas, uh, through that corridor, if you draw a line through, say, Waco, Texas, to Alexandria, Louisiana, to uh, Jackson, Mississippi, then to the Atlantic seaboard up to Raleigh, Durham, they're going to spawn four or five times a year. Wow. You know, you'll see bluegills spawn the first time during bluebird days in January, early February. And then the last spawn will be in October. You know, Lyle, where you are in Missouri, I would expect them to spawn at least three times. Mark, where you are and north of Chicago, mm -hmm. one year, maybe twice a year during a good year. I just witnessed it like two weeks ago. It was so cool to see, too. And the yep. shallows on a local place, but they're they were tiny, stunted bluegill. But there, man, there was beds for for as long as you could look. It was so cool to see. Yep. Frank wants to know uh, suckers would compete with bluegills or not? Not really. Now they won't compete in the food chain, but they will compete in the space. So the suckers will come in. Hey, how they can compete with bluegills is is they'll come in and root around bluegill spawning beds. You know, they'll come in and they'll eat eggs, you know, so that that's how they'll compete. But they don't compete for in the food chain. They compete for space and they'll disrupt the reproduction. Chris says he keeps seven, eight inch panfish for food. Aqua shade works great for too much vegetation, I guess, is what Papa had to say. <laughs> what aqua shade is, let me let me address that really quick. Aqua shade is a pond dye. And what that pond eye does is it shades the water, which prevents the UV rays from the sun to penetrate down into the water column. And so that right there disrupts the growth rate of some vegetation, but it doesn't necessarily kill it. You know, now the other thing it does is when it blocks the sunlight out, it disrupts the food chain. So I don't mind using aqua shade in the wintertime to help get a jump start to prevent aquatic plants, but I don't like using it after the fish begin to spawn because when baby fish are first hatched they got to glean their water their food from the water and i like the water to produce that food very nice very nice boys i'm getting the you're getting what i'm getting the eye were you <laughs> you know bob this has been an eye-opening show for me fantastic uh, yeah, it, it, the, the stuff that you brought to us, the information you've delivered here tonight is simply amazing. Um, I would like to come up with another topic for you and invite you back on our show if you're interested, because um, I think there's a lot more questions out there. And if we would pick another topic, uh, like whatever it might be, that, that you would feel comfortable with, uh, I think that that would be great because uh, it seemed to me like, Mark, that the question just kept they keep coming. coming. I got lots of ideas. I'm sure we can figure something that Bob would agree to. Yeah, but, man, you, this is one of the greatest shows we've had. I agree. Had a lot of fun. Have a ton more questions. I appreciate the time you did give us, and uh, it, it was a pleasure meeting you, Bob. Absolutely. You bet. Let's do it again. And I tell you what, if folks want to uh, hunt me down, I do a Facebook Live on the Pond Boss Facebook page every Wednesday from 6.30 to 7.30 Central Time. That People can always always go to a pondboss.com. We've got a real active discussion forum. Also, uh, not only am I a biologist, I publish a magazine called Pond Boss. I've got the also the Pond Boss Institute of Higher Pondology for those that are serious about wanting to learn about it. I live it, eat it, breathe it. We've got all kinds of things at pondboss.com, free articles, free videos, the, you know, and happy to answer questions. So 
If you want to find me, info at pondboss.com, and I've enjoyed hanging out with you guys tonight. This has been huge. It has been a great show. Thank you so much. Um, Mark, what kind of shows we got coming up the rest of the week? Bob, hang tight. We'll we'll visit with you in just a minute. Okay. We, 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 we have Stan's show, obviously, on Friday, Two Stan's Fishing. Saturday, we have, I believe Mike Greenwell has a show on Saturday nights. I'm not sure if he's still doing it. We have Kevin on Sundays at Palmetto Cats. Uh-oh, Lyle's reading something in the background. No, no. And no. Fisherman afterwards. <laughs> we have Catfish Weekly on Monday. And we have Catfish and Crappie directly after that that's my show tuesday night we have roger uh, wednesday we're back with patriot james and we we're probably going to be shop on thursdays for panfish weekly yep we're probably going to add bob stuff to that uh because i, I want so. to go in there and watch some of that it's so interesting the stuff that you had and the comments that in chat uh, are just flying through about how great the show was tonight and i will agree it it was a learning curve for me there's some stuff when James Dockery is sending me messages in Facebook Messenger, uh, he he like I he does more with the conservation department in Missouri than I do. And I don't do as much as I used to, but James it works. He gives instructions to uh, their classes and stuff, uh, so he's very familiar with what goes on with him. When he's sending me messages in chat saying, "Man, this guy knows his stuff." then you can take it to the bank that the guy knows his stuff. <laughs> so we was impressed with everything that, that you taught us. And Dee has put your link up in chat so people can click on that and go check all this stuff out. And, and I invite the, the viewers tonight to go look at Bob's uh, pages and stuff, the Pond Boss stuff. There is a ton of information on there and a great wealth of stuff that, that we all probably should read about. Anything else? I'm good. Thank you, Bob. Yes, sir. Appreciate it. Great. Well, we we had a great time with you tonight. We'll get you back on here and pick another topic because I, I am thoroughly impressed. And I think the people in chat uh, that watched the show tonight was um, was very, very helpful. Uh, one thing I would like to mention, uh, give me just a second because I should already had it up, but I don't. Um, Next week, Trey Bolton on Panfish Nation. Yes, sir. Fish smack. So that ought to be a, another great show. Bob, thank you a bunch. Folks, thanks for watching Panfish Weekly. We'll see you next week. Good night, everybody. Adios.